Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener on our private feed where you'll have ad-free episodes and join us in Zoom meetups to meet other listeners of our podcast community. Go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes. I think it's important to think of things you do in life as an experiment. And it's almost true no matter what you do, as long as it's not life or death, as long as you don't burn bridges on the way out, it's okay to step out on a limb. My name is Esprit Devora, host of The Women in Tech Show. The show means a lot to me. The reason why I wanted to create The Women in Tech Show is I wanted to create a positive piece of content, something where people can listen and say, if she can do it, so can I. If you too want to connect and collaborate with more incredible women in tech, remember you can go to the Women in Tech Facebook group at womenintechvip.com. That's womenintechvip.com. The best business resource I have is my mentor's private Facebook group. I've never found a community that cares more about one another's success. It inspired me to create the same thing for podcasters. If you're a tech company or startup looking to grow your podcast audience, I created GetPodcastListeners.com, a private group specifically to discover how other podcasters have grown their audiences so we could do the same. Check out GetPodcastListeners.com. That's GetPodcastListeners.com. For those of you who listen regularly know I am obsessed with software and tools to make you more efficient and productive. So new tool discovery of the week is thanks to no code MVP discovered a website builder called card C A R R D. It does look really cool. Admittedly, I have not used it myself, but I've watched tons of ways that it's been used like to recreate the buffer, the famous buffer landing page and all other ways. So check out C A R R D. RD.co. They do not know I'm saying this, but it is really cool the power that, that it has. Another website builder that I've come across is called Webflow. That one looks so dope too. That's webflow.com, W-E-B-F-L-O-W.com. And it looks awesome. I think out of the two, the one I'm going to play with first is Webflow. No particular reason why. I just feel that way, but maybe after watching a bunch of YouTube videos, I'll go back and I'll play with card. I don't know. We'll see. I'm looking for the one that is the easiest, easiest, fastest to do without any code and without any trouble. Hope that helps the little discovery and enjoy the next episode. Welcome back to the Women in Tech podcast, celebrating women in tech around the world excited for our next interview. Welcoming Eve from San Francisco. Hello, Eve. Hi, it's free. It's great to be here. Oh my gosh, I am so excited to have you on. I can't wait for you to share your story. Why don't we kick things off with you telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? I am Director of Accessibility at Google. And by accessibility, I mean that we create software that helps people with disabilities. I'm also a mother to a beautiful three-year-old boy named Oliver. 
And if you're comfortable, one thing that I love to touch in on is how to be a driven leader and committed to your family at the same time. The whole do it all. I think it's important to remember that no matter our gender, we can do it all. And I like to share examples of that. But to kind of ignite the conversation, working in a space that definitely needs more attention, and especially in the podcasting world, it's something that we could improve on as an industry as a whole. Can you tell us more about that. How do you work with the disabled community and how do you empower them? It is all about listening to people and understanding what's important to them. What are the needs that aren't being solved? I think sometimes people start with the technology and try to fit that into solutions, whereas it should really be the opposite. Working with people, making sure that people with disabilities are part of the community working on the products in the company, doing outreach to people around the world who don't work at your company and really understanding and listening. That's the most important thing. What's your day-to-day look like? Every day is very different, which works for me. I love it that way. I think my role, I'm overseeing accessibility across the company, which means I'm working with hundreds of colleagues across Google who work on product development, who do engineering, who do marketing or communications or education, so many different things. And so a lot of my time is spent talking with people, working with people, figuring out ways in which we can collaborate and just do things together. This is kind of off the cuff and something I've definitely never brought up on the Women in Tech podcast, but I think it would empower all of us. Can you share with us some things that we could do as a community to be better listeners and to make things more accessible, like podcasting? What's something I can do as a podcaster? Not to put you on the spot, Eve, but if you don't mind, what's something I could do as a podcaster to make the Women in Tech podcast more accessible to everyone? Well, I think podcasting is a fairly verbal means of communication. There is no video component to it. So of course, the most important thing is to have transcripts available to people. Uh, But there's also making sure that the words are clear because every disability, there's, there's a range. It's not deaf or hearing. It can be anything in between. So making sure that there's good audio quality, that there's not too much distracting noise or music or other things. And are there certain terms that are empowering terms that we should be using as a community? Like earlier, I used the word disabled. Is that not an appropriate word? Should I be using a a different word? Well, there's no consensus on this, really. There are things that some people prefer. Often people prefer what's called person first language. So you would say a person with a disability as opposed to a disabled person. A person with a disability. I will remember that indeed. And when did you get started on this journey and becoming passionate about being supportive, about spending a lot of attention on accessibility? Well, I got started working on it seven years ago. And in a way, it was by chance. I was working at Google and I had a friend named Raman. He's a blind engineer at Google. And I just happened to run into him in one of Google's famous cafeterias. We had been friends for years, but on this fateful day, he mentioned that the accessibility team was hiring. And for me, it was pretty much a no-brainer. It just seemed so exciting to me to be able to have an opportunity to work on something that helps fulfill Google's mission 
of making the world's information available to everybody. And so I decided to do it. That was seven years ago. And I haven't looked back. It's It's been so fulfilling, of course, emotionally fulfilling, but also just intellectually fulfilling because accessibility isn't just about a checklist of things that you're supposed to do when you make software or hardware. Right. It's also about innovation. And now that machine learning has taken off so widely and capabilities of machines are greater than ever before. This presents a lot of opportunities for building really innovative things for people. It's funny is that I'm so I'm just going to call myself out and I'm sorry for anybody that may get upset with me, but I'm so ignorant. I've never thought that like you could be blind and still code. That's so ignorant of me. And it makes me want to champion more engineers who are blind in code. I'm really moved that really we could achieve anything we want to achieve as long as we know that the resources that are in place. It's one of the reasons why I created this Women in Tech podcast. So what are some of the resources that exist for people with a disability to move forward in an engineering career? If we could talk about that just for a second, I think it's awesome. Yeah. Well, I love the broader point that you're making, which is that technology really can be something that helps level the playing field for people. As long as the people who are involved in creating the technology and deciding what technology to use in their schools and their workplaces, as long as they actually take into account building and buying accessible software, we can enable people to do whatever they're good at doing and not be held back. So there, there are a lot of different assistive technologies. That's what we call technologies that help people with disability. So there are technologies that help blind people, for example, understand what's on the screen. It can be a screen reader. It can be braille output. It really depends on the person's preference. Or if a person has low vision, magnification tools, for example, or contrast. Uh, For people with motor impairments, which means that they might have trouble using their hands or other parts of their body, You can use things like mechanical switches. You can use voice control of applications. So really, a lot of assistive technologies are about changing a mode of input, so not having to type, not having to use a mouse, or changing a mode of output, so not having to see or not having to hear. And so really, if it's done right, nobody should face limitations in the work that they do. I love that. I love that. And something I'm inspired to ask as well, and it's something I think about all the time with the community I work in, Los Angeles Tech and Women in Tech Globally, I have this desire to get to understand as many people's perspectives as possible so that we could be a good representation. It's hard to describe. I feel like I still don't do uh, the job that I desire to do and end, that I strive to do. Uh, The question I want to ask is, How do you feel you've evolved in the last seven years pre, you know, working in accessibility and now like what's something opening that we could all learn from so we could evolve to? Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, it definitely makes sense. And I think I continue to evolve, even though I've been working in this area for seven years, I continue to learn about different people and their stories and and what they care about. And it really is about listening and meeting people and talking 
to people and not generalizing, not thinking that everybody with a disability or really anybody from any group is, is the same. And so, um, I have some really great colleagues who I just love spending time with them. I'll tell you about one of them. His name is Dmitry Konevsky, and he's a research scientist at Google, brilliant mathematician. He has been deaf since he was very young, I think age of two or so. And he was having difficulty having conversations with his colleagues at work. And one of his colleagues decided, well, let's build something. Let's create something to help. And so he started engineering this thing, which we actually released last year. It's called Live Transcribe. And it transcribes the words that somebody is saying when you're when you're talking with them live or even over video conference, you could use it. Right. And so it's made such a difference for Dimitri and for me when I'm with him. For example, before this uh, lockdown started and I was having lunch in Google's cafeterias, <laughs> I ran into him one day and I was able to just sit down with him at the table in the cafeteria and we just had a normal conversation. And previously we would have had to schedule somebody to do remote captioning or, or something else to be able to understand each other, especially in a noisy environment. Right. And so... So that was really meaningful. And I think the coolest story for me is that he is able to use this now to communicate with his twin six-year-old grandchildren. Oh, wow. I know. That's so cool. And that's for several reasons. It's so important to understand a diverse range of human beings because we're able to more effectively communicate with one another if we understand that on top of every other reason that it's important to. But the innovation that comes out of from having the desire to understand more people and having that desire to serve and to help creates innovation like you're talking about. That's really, really cool. So what were you doing before this this seven year evolution of what (laughs) what was your journey in tech before then? What were you working on? Well, I've done a whole bunch of different things. My job immediately before this one was pretty exciting too. And if if accessibility weren't something I was so passionate about, I don't I don't know if I ever would have wanted to leave that either. I was leading technical partnerships for Latin America for Google. I was living in New York at the time, but I got to fly down all the time to various countries, especially in South America. My team was in Argentina and in Brazil, and we were working with partners all around the continent to help them have better technical integrations with Google's ad products. So that that was lots of fun, too. And we're going to get into the very, very beginning. But just before we go there, what was the spark that you had before you were presented the opportunity to work in the division you're in now? Did you have a spark in that subject matter beforehand or did it come with the role? That because you have a sincere passion. I see the smile on your face and it's awesome. It's bright and it's vibrant and it's so genuine. But was it an educational process and you developed that passion or was it a curiosity that developed into that passion? Well, I grew up with family members with disabilities. And so I think it was always in my subconscious that people with disabilities deserve to have the same opportunities in life as everybody else. Growing up, my favorite aunt, 
uh, Aunt Sandy. I loved her so much. She was in a wheelchair. She had muscular dystrophy. And my dad, actually, my dad was an engineer and he built an attachment for her wheelchair. So I never thought that I was following in my dad's footsteps, but I guess my dad actually did accessibility engineering too. I mean, I've said it on podcast episodes before that my dad had a huge influence, I mean, the influence in my journey into tech. Let's jump, it's a perfect transition. Let's jump into that. So when do you first remember being curious about technology? Was it when your dad engineered this, you called it an accessory for the wheelchair? Is that how you said it? it was yeah, a, I think yeah. I said attachment, yeah. but Oh, attachment, thing. yeah. Was it then or was there another point after that or before that that you really felt that spark? Well, I grew up with technology and I always liked it from the very beginning. I remember my dad sitting down with me at his computer, he had a really antiquated computer, or probably modern by those standards, <laughs> with the five and a quarter inch diskettes. And I remember him showing me how to program in BASIC. So writing spaghetti that is code. That so awesome. I know. I mean, <laughs> looking really back cool. on it. <laughs> so jealous. Oh, the, I mean, the code, it was BASIC code. So it was really, really bad what we call spaghetti code because you you can't really follow it. It's <laughs> the, the the syntax of basic is really really bad. But How old I, were you? I don't remember exactly, but I was young. I was really That's so cool, really young, and that was so much fun. And and I remember hanging out with my dad in the workshop. He would do woodworking, and I was standing there with him. I think we weren't so protective about kids in those days. So I was helping him cut things with a bandsaw and drill things with the drill press. And <laughs> it was so much fun. So I feel like it was integrated into my life. Oh, here's a story about my dad's personality. Please. So he was from Sweden and he uh, had what's known as Swedish humor, which sometimes people <laughs> say or lack thereof. <laughs> Swedish people really like bad jokes. And I know I'm overgeneralizing. Sorry to any <laughs> Swedish people out there. But a joke that he made up is the following. Okay. How do you brainwash someone? How? With an IQ tip. <laughs> I didn't know if you would laugh or groan. You're kind of doing something in between. But here's another here's another dad thing. So instead of making Swedish meatballs like a normal Swedish parent would, he didn't want to thaw the hamburger meat. That was too much effort. So he would chop it up into blocks and he called it meat parallelopipeds. Honestly, I like love them. <laughs> It's like, what? <laughs> I find these jokes oddly relaxing. I love it. Yeah. And okay, so, okay. The, I mean, that's just so good. You're making me think about Europe in general. And I just, I love the, I, I love it. And so going in, so your dad was this huge influence in your life. And I feel connected to the stories that you're sharing so much so. And then um, when was the first four-way into it professionally? Like, did you start studying it in school or was it an internship out of school? What were those beginning pathways? Yeah, I actually, when I started college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. 
I was always the kind of person who was interested in everything. I liked literature. I loved math, physics, everything. So I ended up studying engineering and applied science, uh, which is a, a pretty a pretty general major encompassing a lot of things. And I specialized in mechanical engineering. And the reason I did that, I didn't really think about it at the time. But looking back, I think that it was probably because of a professor I had, Professor Melanie Hunt at Caltech. And I just saw this amazing woman teaching mechanical engineering classes and doing research and like real world class research. And I thought, well, maybe I can follow in her footsteps. So that's what I studied. I wasn't even studying computer science. But then while I was a student, the internet really started to take off, the web did. And so that was when I saw that computing was more than calculations and other things, that it, it was really becoming something that was about communication, that it was about connecting people. And that's when I really started becoming interested in it. And I started getting paid gigs doing it while while I was a student. How did you do that? Did you apply? I just think it's important for people to see the connection. Did you apply? Did you find them? Were they on a job board? How did you connect to those paid gigs? Yeah, well, this was a while ago. And there weren't that many people with personal websites back then. And so <laughs> I think they, they mostly found me. Because you, you had like the, the one personal website on the web. <laughs> <laughs> I had a website all about the number pi, which I was madly in love with. Oh my gosh, <laughs> so. I love it. I absolutely love it. And so jumping forward, how did you end up being connected into this opportunity with Google? Like, what did you love about the culture at Google and wanting to be part of that ecosystem? I think almost every opportunity I've ever had was about connections with people. The story of how I got into Google is really no different from that. So at the time, I was living in Salt Lake City, and I was doing an executive MBA part-time. So I was flying to San Francisco a couple times a month to take classes. And one of my classmates was at Google. And I had never thought of myself as a Google type of person before. I always thought I was a startup type of person, entrepreneur like you. And <laughs> um, But Google, of course, was a company that I admired a lot because it was really changing the way that people interacted with content on the web. And so he just told me about his job and I got interviews through that connection. And that's how I ended up at Google. And I loved it. If you can just imagine walking into Google, all of these really smart people, energetic people, innovative people. It was, I felt like a kid in a candy store, just too many interesting conversations to choose from. I completely understand that feeling. And one thing I want to touch on before we started recording, you mentioned that you've listened to the Women in Tech podcast and that you really like it. And I was curious and I, I haven't intended asking this, like, what is it about you that makes you moved by the content? Like, why do you like the show? Well, I really like that you've gathered together this amazing group of women around the entire world who have really vastly different experiences 
Some of the people grew up knowing that they were going to work in technology. Some majored in computer science. Others did completely different things and then found themselves on this path. But they all come at it with a genuine love for what they do and an appreciation of it. Also, Esprit, the other reason I really enjoyed it is because of you. Oh my gosh, now I'm going to blush. I know, I apologize. But your your energy and positivity and how you draw out these stories from so many people. Thank you so much. Like, I'm obviously very flattered. My intent, though, that I thought would be helpful as part of the conversation is... So I have a lot of questions that come up. I'm sure they come up with you too, is what is it to be in tech? What does that mean? And then some people say, you know, I have a lifestyle podcast and I think it's important to understand our journey where other people say, well, if it's in tech, it has to be a conversation about coding. What is your point of view? Why why do you or don't you think it's just as important to tell the story of our journey throughout technology in addition to having a conversation of what is it to code? Yeah, coding's just one little piece of it. There's so much more. A lot of tech is about people. It's about understanding people and finding a way to help people through what you create. So it's not about coding. It's it's about an entire ecosystem and communities and things that you can create together. And so what does being in tech mean to you? It means the word community? I don't think it means the word community because I think community, there's some overlap between community and tech, but it's not the same thing, really. I think technology is about creating new things that somehow enhance people's lives. Do you think the term in tech means to code? No, it's much, much, much broader than that. And people of all different types of roles are in tech. There are people in marketing and finance and communications and user experience design and research and just so many different things. And coding is one tiny piece of the puzzle. I think it's a really important little micro conversation to have because I connect with so many women that say, I can't be on your show. I don't code. And I'm like, huh, I don't like, I don't need you to code to be in tech. You're, you founded a tech company (laughs) or, you know, or, or whatever it may be. And so I, I think it's interesting to kind of take a beat every now and again to have that reminder of, I don't know, this is going to sound so hokey, but like of acceptance of of empowerment and acceptance that you don't have to code to be in tech and you are worth being celebrated. Well, for many reasons, but also working in the tech space and moving things forward, even if you're not an engineer, it still means you're an important part of the bigger the bigger puzzle. Speaking of the bigger puzzle, since you listen to the show, you probably know I ask this question all the time. It's my favorite question to ask. What is a huge obstacle you've successfully overcome and how did you overcome it? Stick around. We'll be right back after the break. We would not be able to support and celebrate women in tech around the world if it weren't for you. Thank you so much for being a listener and a fan of the show. To contribute and donate, simply go to womenintech.fm on the upper right-hand side and click Donate, which empowers us to continue celebrating women in tech around the world. Thank you for being a part of our journey. What is a huge obstacle you've successfully overcome and how did you overcome it? 
There have been so many over the course of my career. Actually, how I like to think of my career is like a rubber band. So I stretch myself almost to the point of breaking, and then I let it relax, and I can feel competent for a little while. And then I stretch, and then I achieve competence over and over and over again. Eventually, the rubber band becomes bigger. But I think one of the places where I really stretched myself was the year I spent on assignment in Argentina. So I had had this technical partnerships role. But at this point, I was living in London. I hadn't even started the the Latin American role that I told you about. So I was living in London and I saw this posting internally for a one-year assignment in Argentina. It was in the sales department. It was a job role that I had never done before in a completely different department, working with people who I didn't know and speaking 100% Spanish. (laughs) And I applied for it. And Of course you did. Of course you did. (laughs) I love it. Well, and, and they gave it to me. And At first, I wondered, was I the only one who applied? But apparently, there was competition for the role. (laughs) I love it. And uh, you know how women do tend to not apply for roles until they feel like they have 100% of the qualifications. And I think we're really limiting ourselves when we do that. I think just apply. And whoever's doing the hiring decision, they can decide if you have enough transferable skills to do the role. And so I applied, I got it, I moved to Argentina and I felt so useless for the first three months. I spoke some Spanish, but I did not speak it well. I couldn't really follow the meetings. I was trying to catch up on the notes afterwards. I was studying Spanish every night when I got home. The role was completely different. There was nobody in that job function with me in Argentina, my colleagues were were scattered. So I was learning the role and, you know, living in a new place. The first few weeks I was in a hotel that was a little bit sketchy. (laughs) So it really, that was probably very much the deep end of the pool because I was doing so many things at the same time that I had no idea how to do. But even with that, over time, I learned And I think by the end of the assignment there, I was actually pretty good at that job. Wait, but how did you not quit? What was your headspace? What did you hold on to that you just didn't quit? Yeah, I think it's important to think of things you do in life as an experiment. Mm -hmm. It was an experiment. I tried that role. If I needed to, I could have gone back to the previous one. And it's almost true no matter what you do, as long as it's not life or death, as long as you don't burn bridges on the way out, it's okay to step out on a limb, see what happens, and you have some kind of safety net. Other companies you can go to, you're not going to just find yourself unemployed because you have this one hard experience. So I think I approached it with with that kind of mindset. And that gave me the confidence that I could just try to do it. And if it didn't work, okay, but might as well give it a shot. I think that is so cool. That's so cool. I think making it through those months where it just felt torturous and hanging in there anyway, it's very inspiring. One thing that I brought up at the beginning of the interview that I'd like to touch note on is 
I think in the tech culture, we have this hustle, hustle, harder, grind, all these words, grind, grind, hustle, hustle. And there's no space for self-care. There's no space to be a loving family member, to be a friend, to prioritize eating well. (laughs) It's like eat the raw. I mean, that's like just notorious ramen and startups and like tech is like notorious with one another. What kind of insight can you give us on what it takes or how to think in order to make enough time for both our personal priorities as well as our professional priorities in tandem? Well, I think women feel like they have to be perfect, which really is shooting ourselves in the foot because you don't have to get 100% of the way there. You can achieve 90% of a lot of things in half the time. So I think if we can get over that, that can really help a lot. For me, I think one of the best pieces of advice that I ever heard came from one of the leaders at Google at one of the internal conferences. He said to the entire room, take care of yourself. You're in this for the long run. This is not a short-term thing. You have a long career ahead of you. And if you don't take care of yourself now, then you're not going to be able to achieve nearly as much as you will in the long run. And so I really took that to heart right then and there and started to think like that. And I I say similar things to my team members as well. It's really, it's about well-being and about having happy, productive team members. And in the end, the results are going to be better. I love it. I think I learned the hard way and I'm still learning. I still feel a lot of resistance to it. Um, If I don't take care of myself, I'm not able to serve others and I still fight it. And then I, I, I retreat. I'm like, okay, I have to go slower. Some, somebody recently said um, something like, to go slow is to go fast or something, you know? <laughs> I'm like, man, okay, working on it, working on it. <laughs> what are some of your favorite tech tools? Well, I think my favorite one to play with is Google Maps. I've just always loved maps and I like cartography and I love the old maps where things are out of proportion. And it's interesting, you get in the mind of the person creating the map. Why are things not to scale? What were they thinking? Why did the world seem this way to them? So I think that's really fascinating. And it's fun to just explore the world. But uh, the other technology that I just tried for the first time last weekend, and I loved it, is called Tinkercad. It lets you Tinkercad lets you build 3D models that then you can print with your 3D printer just using a web page. And it's pretty intuitive and really fun. And the reason that I thought to try it out was that I was playing with my three-year-old. And he has Legos. He also has a marble run, which is lots of fun. You put marbles in, you can build these really complicated structures. And he wanted a connector between them. And they they weren't connecting. The pieces just slide off of each other. And I thought, wow, we can build some really cool things if we can connect these. And so I designed a Lego Marble Run connector where now the different types of pieces can be held together. And I printed it out on a 3D printer and it worked. 
Oh, I love it. I love it. I hear from a lot of parents that there's this curious playfulness that comes by being a parent that for some reason, if you don't have children, you're not like an easy access to and it helps expand the mind and create more solution in ways you wouldn't have thought of before. I'm probably not describing it well, but I hear it a lot on interviews with with people who have children that this curious playfulness, I know that I'm usually so stressed out, like <laughs> I'm, I need to spend more time learning how to be playful. <laughs> Just have Kid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Or, or play with somebody else's. That's easier. <laughs> and um, I, I always love to ask, I know it's a little bit of an archaic question, but I still think it's so much fun. What books are your favorite? Well, I, I uh, have a whole bunch of paper books that I have not put out in boxes on the corner, even though I am always trying to make space. And the reason is I'm saving them for my son for when he gets older. And yes. so there, there are a few I'm really excited about reading with him. Uh, one is Freakonomics. Of because, course. Yeah, because I love anything that turns something that seems intractable, societal things into something that can actually be analyzed and understood. Um, another one is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> um, also, there's one called Space Time Physics, which nice. which explains special relativity in the most intuitive way possible, which might not sound uh, <laughs> like it's that doable, but this book really does it. It's amazing. And then all of these travel books, because of course, of course, you can look things up online these days, but he likes to flip through them and look at pictures and it just creates this, these opportunities for serendipity and what you learn and what you see. And so I'm going to keep them even if all the guides are out of date. I don't care. I love it. I love it. I have tons of bookshelves with real books and all my friends make fun of me. Um, but I just, I don't know. I love my mentor, my mentor is actually 19, if you could believe it. It's very, I, I don't care who I learn from as long as I get to learn. And he said, he's extremely successful. And he said the way that he became successful is he read a book a week starting at 14. That's and, incredible. And his books were his mentors. I mean, wow. like he's amazing. So yeah, I'm, I'm a big book fan. <laughs> <laughs> so is there anything you wanted me to ask that I didn't ask yet? I'd love to tell a story about somebody I knew and loved who I think uh, can teach your listeners something really important. I had a colleague at Google named Ada Majoric, and she was a software engineer. She was diagnosed with ALS while she was working at Google, and she wasn't working on accessibility, but she decided that for the end of her life, she wanted to really do something that was going to contribute to society and and help people's lives. And so she joined my accessibility team and she worked on the software called Dasher, which even though she was day by day losing the ability to speak, the ability to use her hands, Dasher allowed her to create written words, which could then be spoken out using really minimal movements. And she actually worked on it and wrote a lot of the code for it. And wow. after, after she passed away, I was talking to her husband and her husband said that Ada told him that she felt like being able to work on this prolonged her life by another year. 
And so I guess my my lesson to people is no matter what your values are, what your passions are, just understand what's important to you and then then choose that. And that's going to make your life so much more meaningful. Oh, I love that. That was absolutely beautiful. Okay. <laughs> um, so Eve, you have super inspired me for something that I haven't thought about before. And I'm, you know, no self-hate. Let's just table the self-hate. And I'm just going to go, I want to do something about it now. You have inspired me that I want to champion more women in tech who are living with disabilities. And if you could help expose me to that community so I could support and celebrate them, I would absolutely love that because I have not done that enough on that, this show and I'd like to do it a lot more. I think that's a great idea. I know some amazing people to introduce you to and there's so many more people also. So what a great idea. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, th- this is this is a show about connectivity and I it's not just about connecting women. It's about connecting people. And um, I know I tell the story of women and and women in tech. But for me, the message is just so much bigger. It's about it's just about being a global voice and, and really peeking in on, on a point of view you wouldn't have had otherwise. And so that we could all walk away empowered, invo- evolved and understand one another more. I know I'm getting a little bit sentimental. Um, so, Eve, if you could go back to the beginning of your career and give yourself one piece of advice, what piece of advice would that be? I think I would give myself well-being advice for early in my career. I was really, really driven and I pushed myself to the limits. I had my company. I was writing code day and night. I would fall asleep in my chair and wake up with computer keyboard marks all across my forehead. And and that was fine because I got a lot done and had no social life, but I really didn't treat my body well enough. And I still have RSI or repetitive strain injury because of that, because of how much I was typing over 20 years ago. And thank goodness for assistive technologies, because I actually use my voice to do a lot of typing now, because typing can be painful. But if I could go back and and tell myself one thing, I think that would be the biggie. Oh, wow. Wow. It's crazy how similar our paths have been between like our fathers and like overworking young and then having this like self-care realization. (laughs) And I think a lot of people share that that trajectory in their journey. It's just it's very uh Thank you for sharing that with us. And how about in the future? Where do you see yourself, you know, five, 10 years from now? Well, I love what I'm doing now. So I won't be disappointed if I'm still working on accessibility, though there is one area that I really love and would like to do more of, and that's education. It goes back to what I said earlier about leveling the playing field. And I really feel like there's an opportunity to help people all over the world, wherever they are, whatever their ability or disability or race or gender, or all kinds of different factors that people are born into. I, I feel like education is the big leveler and I would love to do more in that area. I love it. How can people connect with you? Are you on LinkedIn? What's best? Yeah, LinkedIn is my main place. Can you spell your name for everybody? 
Eve Anderson, E-V-E-A-N-D-E-R-S-S-O-N. Note the two S's, please. Eve, thank you so much for hanging out with the Women in Tech podcast to connect and collaborate with more women in tech around the world. Go to the Women in Tech Facebook group at womenintechvip.com. Takes you straight there. Womenintechvip.com. Say hello on social at Women in Tech Show on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. I will see you guys, talk to you guys, hear you guys in the next episode. Bye. Bye. Hi, this is Eve Anderson. I work at Google. I'm Director of Accessibility, building technology to help people with disabilities. I'm based in San Francisco, California, and you're listening to Women in Tech. Hi, this is Arlen Hamilton, author of It's About Damn Time, How to Turn Being Underestimated into Your Greatest Advantage. And you're listening to We Are LA Tech. I feel so grateful I've had the privilege of getting an advanced copy of Arlen Hamilton's new book, It's About Dan Time. She is one of the most inspiring venture capitalists I've ever come across. Her story from having absolutely nothing and being completely broke to being one of the most influential venture capitalists in the world blows my mind. And her book is insanely well-written. Right when I picked it up, I didn't want to put it down. She teaches me and us how to become the asset, how to be our best selves, and how to be a person that not only creates opportunity for ourselves, but creates an abundance of opportunity for others. I'm so proud to share her book with you, and I hope you'll pick it up. And I know for sure you'll be just as riveted as I was with each page you turned. Get It's About Damn Time at itsaboutdamntime.com. The Women in Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Esprit Devora, With help from Janice Geronimo. Edited by Adam Carroll. And music from Jay Huffman Live and Epidemic Sound. The Women in Tech podcast is a wearetech.fm production. Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener, go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes.